Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In March 1942, troops from the Imperial Japanese Army seized control of the centres of Leh and Salamoa in New Guinea. These centres became a staging post for attacks on Port Moresby and their subsequent Kokoda campaign. By January 1943, the Japanese advance along the Kokoda track had been halted and pushed back. The villages of Gona, Buna and Sanananda had been recaptured. Now the Allies could turn their attention to retaking Leh and Salamoa, with a view to seizing the entire Huon Peninsula. The Leh Salamoa campaign consisted of a series of battles, small in size owing to the terrain, but fierce and brutal. At this point in the war, the Japanese were far from a defeated army. They could still put up a stubborn resistance from strong defensive positions. Shifting them was vital for the progress of the war, but it would be costly. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. Hey everyone, welcome back. No doubt some of you, like me, don't really have your head around the chronology of events in New Guinea during World War II, nor might you have a grasp on the geographical location where these events occurred. I'll be the first to admit that, as World War I has been my main area of interest, I've not really looked too far into the fighting in New Guinea over the years. So, as much to get it straight in the mostly empty, cavernous expanses of my own head, I reckon it'll be beneficial to all if I give a rundown of what's happened prior to the Alay Salamoa campaign. Nothing too detailed, but just enough to provide context. The Japanese strategy during 1942, since their attack on Pearl Harbour, can basically be summed up as a need to secure locations whereby they could monitor the sea routes through the Pacific Islands, establish airfields and safe harbours from which they could sally forth to intercept any enemy shipping, all for the purpose of securing the resources they required to maintain their conquests. As usual, I've done a massive oversimplification of a complicated situation, but you get the general idea. Off the northeast coast of New Guinea lies the island of New Britain, which held the strategically important city of Rabaul. The Japanese seized Rabaul in January 1942 and over the next 12 months built it into a strong base for attacking into the Pacific. But on its own, it would be pretty ineffective. So the push south continued. The Huon Peninsula juts out from the north coast of the New Guinea mainland, pointing towards New Britain. Between the two are the Dampier and Vitias Straits. The straits weren't vitally important, but control of them and the surrounding seas would allow safe transport of men and supplies into northern New Guinea. The Japanese took Finshaven on the easternmost point of the Huon Peninsula in February of 1942. At the point where the southern end of the Huon Peninsula joins the mainland is the town of Leh, and further to the south is Salamoa, which the Japanese captured in March 1942 without a fight. With Rabaul, Finshaven, Leh and Salamoa now in their hands, the Japanese basically had the top half of the Solomon Sea secured. Now they needed the bottom half. To do that, they need to take Milne Bay on the southernmost tip of New Guinea and Port Moresby, the country's capital and largest port on the southern side. If they could take the port, then they effectively controlled the southwest Pacific, as by this stage they'd also taken Ambon and much of the Dutch East Indies in the Timor Sea to the west, thereby securing their access to the mineral wealth of Papua and New Guinea and the oil reserves of the Timor Sea. So they had a crack at taking Port Moresby with a seaborne assault at Milne Bay, 
but the stubborn defence of the Australians and the Battle of the Coral Sea put an end to that plan, and so they decided to go overland across the Owen Stanley Range. Thus commenced the Kokoda Campaign. I've already covered the opening phases of that campaign in previous episodes, so I won't spend any more time on them here. But I will be covering the fight back along the Kokoda Track and the Battle of Milne Bay in upcoming episodes, so again, I won't spend too much time on them here. Suffice to say, the Japanese were denied Port Moresby and Milne Bay and were pushed back to the northern beaches of New Guinea and finally evicted from the lower end at the battles of Buna, Gona and San Ananda. By this stage, January to February 1943, American troops had joined the Australians in New Guinea and planning began on recapturing those strongholds the Japanese had taken in early 1942, the first of which was Salamoa. But the Japanese weren't going to just sit back and wait. About 50 kilometres inland from Salamoa lies the small village of Wau, up in the Finisterre Ranges. During the 1920s and 30s, an airfield had been built at Wau for the purpose of getting men in and gold out. The Australians had taken Wau in January 1943. After the Japanese had abandoned their defence of Guadalcanal, the capture of Port Moresby again became of the utmost importance. So their first step was to try and take back the airfield. To do this, they sent an invasion fleet from Rabaul in the belief that bad weather would provide the shipping with cover from American air attack. They were wrong. An American scout aircraft saw the fleet and soon the attack aircraft arrived. Over a two-day period, known as the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, the fleet carrying nearly 7,000 Japanese troops was annihilated, with the Japanese losing all eight transport ships and four destroyers. Now, from the Allies' perspective, they could move on Salamoa and Ley. The Salamoa Ley campaign ran from the 22nd of April to 16th of September 1943 and consisted of a number of separate battles, mostly involving Australians and occasionally with the assistance from US troops. I'll describe the campaign battle by battle, but we'll focus mainly on the Australian involvement, as this is the Australian Military History Podcast. But I will give a brief overview of the American involvement as well, just to make sure we capture the bigger picture. It's also important to keep in mind that these were not sequential battles, following along one after the other. Some started on the same dates as others, while some kicked off while earlier battles were still being fought. This may make it difficult to keep track of, but we'll see how it goes. So the official kick-off of the Salamoa Lay campaign was the Battle of Mubo. Kanga Force, an ad hoc group of units, had been operating in the area inland of Salamoa for a while and had secured Wau Airfield. Now, with the arrival of the 2nd 7th Battalion, Kanga Force was dissolved and its units incorporated into the 3rd Division. The 2nd 7th arrived in the area around 22nd of April and together with the 2nd 5th, 2nd 6th and the 2nd 8th Battalions brought the 17th Brigade up to strength. Brigadier Murray Moton decided it was time to move things forward. Between Wau and Salamoa was a series of ridge lines, and the first major positions which needed to be taken were the Pimple and Green Hill in the Mubo region. Orders were issued on 22nd of April, but it wasn't until the 24th of April that they were in position to begin the attack. The Pimple lay on the approaches to the main objective of Green Hill, and C Company was given the task of taking the Pimple. According to the 2nd 7th Unit Diary, the men of C Company were eagerly awaiting the day's operations. But you've got to wonder just how eager they actually were. Even if there were no Japanese in the area, the day promised an arduous hike up a steep hill surrounded by jungle in oppressive humidity. I can't imagine they'd be eagerly awaiting that. But anyway, at 10.30am, right on time, four Douglas Boston bombers began the attack by bombing the Lebabia feature, Observation Hill, Green Hill and strafing along Kitchen Creek. It all looked pretty impressive and accurate, but in the final wash-up, it proved to be ineffective. Under Captain Pringle, 14th Platoon, with some of 15th Platoon began an encircling movement with the intention of working their way up to the rear of the Japanese position. 13th Platoon, under Lieutenant Dinsmore, were to make a faint attack on the road towards the front of the Japanese in the hopes of keeping them busy while the other two platoons did their thing. 
but it all unraveled pretty quickly. They had underestimated the extent of the Japanese defences and overestimated the effect of the aerial bombardment. 13 platoon came under heavy machine gun fire and were pinned down, which wouldn't have been a terrible outcome if it had drawn any fire away from the encircling movement. After all, that's the job of a faint attack, not to take a position, but to draw enemy attention. But it failed in that endeavour, as Captain Pringle and his force seemed to have disappeared. They certainly weren't attacking the rear of the Japanese position like they were supposed to. Major Nelson went looking for them and found they too were pinned down. The Japanese had at least four machine guns and the 400 yards between Pringle and the northern part of the enemy positions was full of well-dug-in Japanese infantry. Major Nelson decided to try a further encirclement from the south using A Company. That company had spent the morning making deception movements all around the south to try and draw enemy fire away from C Company. Nelson now sent them forward. By stumps on day one, A Company occupied a position just forward of Observation Hill, C Company was still exactly where the Japanese had stopped them, and the Japanese were still very much in possession of the pimple. At 5am the next day, the CO and his senior officers went forward and had a conference with Captain Pringle and Major Nelson. The upshot was that Pringle was told to make full use of the artillery to soften up the place. C Company was to booby-trap the area and pull back to a safe distance. Lieutenant Tyre's platoon was located in a position to the north of the pimple and ambushed a Japanese patrol inflicting casualties. But then, around mid-morning, they observed a group of about 60 Japanese reinforcements heading to the pimple from Green Hill. They were in danger of being cut off. So Tyres conducted a fighting withdrawal and joined the rest of C Company back where they'd pretty much started off the day before. Over the following days, attempts were made to reduce the Japanese defences with artillery and aerial bombardments. On 2nd of May, following an aerial bombardment on Green Hill, four rounds from a mountain gun were fired into the pimple. This was the signal for A Company to make another attempt. They went forward, and as recorded in the unit diary, quote, The enemy had vacated the pimple during the strike, moving unexpectedly down the south slopes towards our own troops. The advancing troops were fired on before they reached the pimple area. The enemy reoccupied their defensive positions, and the situation developed into much the same state as it has done in other attacks. End quote. There's nothing more to do but withdraw and again try to reduce the Japanese positions with artillery and aerial bombardment. They tried again on the 7th of May. Seven, eight and nine platoons each worked their way to about 30 to 35 yards from the Japanese positions, but again the heavy machine gun and rifle fire pinned them down. Then, when it began to rain steadily, it was obvious that once again they would need to pull back. Not content to sit on the defensive all the time, the Japanese launched their own attack against the 2nd 7th Battalion on the 9th of May. Shortly after 8am, a booby trap went off. Troops were sent to investigate and noticed a party of Japanese advancing against their right flank. Shots were exchanged, and then the main Japanese attack fell on the left flank. Under Captain Tatterson, the Australians were cut off, and over the following days, up to 500 Japanese troops attacked the isolated position. It wasn't until the 11th of May that a relieving force was able to break through to Tatterson. The Australians had suffered 12 casualties, but inflicted 100. Obviously, in these conditions, defence always had the upper hand. The fighting around Mubo continued into July, where other operations were undertaken to try and force a Japanese withdrawal through indirect pressure. But by 7th of July, the Japanese still held the positions, and so the 2nd 6th Battalion and the 2nd 5th Battalion had their crack at it. Moving forward from Wow, A and B Companies from the 2nd 6th and C Company from the 2nd 5th attacked Observation Hill. Brigadier Moten sent a message to the 2nd 6th Battalion stating, Please convey to Captains Stewart, Gullet and Morse and their men my complete confidence in their ability to capture Observation Hill and thus open the door to Salamoa. Good luck to you all. Which was very nice of him, and I'm sure it made all the difference. By 10.45, the troops were on the move and by 13.50, B Company had reached its jumping off point. 
C Company of the 2nd 5th and A Company reached their positions by 1545. The afternoon was spent in patrolling and harassing Japanese patrols and orders were issued to carry out a dawn attack on Observation Hill. That attack had to be cancelled due to poor light preventing A Company from relieving B Company in time, but eventually things got moving and Observation Hill was finally taken. American attacks in other locations, as well as further attacks against the Pimple and Green Hill by Australians, finally started getting some results. With Observation Hill lost to them, the Japanese realised their hold on the area was now untenable. On 12th of July, the township, Amubo, was captured and the Japanese withdrew. The 2nd 6th Battalion sent a company to join up with an American force to establish a blocking position, hoping to cut off the Japanese retreat. But they arrived too late, and the Japanese slipped through to set up another defensive position on Mount Tambu. While the Battle of Mubo was going on, so was the Battle of Bob Doobie. The first Battle of Bob Doobie was fought from the 22nd of April to 29th of May, while the second Battle of Bob Doobie was fought from the 30th of June to the 19th of August. You'll note that the kick-off date, 22nd of April, is the same as Mubo. Bob Doobie was on the northern end of a ridgeline that led back to Mubo. The first operations against Bob Doobie were conducted by the 2nd 3rd Independent Company. On the 21st of April, an ambush patrol under Lieutenant Stevens went out on the Kamiatum track, set up and waited. Kamiatum was a small village about halfway between Mubo and Bob Doobie. Small parties of five or so Japanese passed by, but Stevens waited for something a bit more juicy. At about quarter to eleven that night, that target presented itself in the form of a large Japanese patrol of about 60 troops moving towards Bob Doobie. Stevens waited until the head of the column was only four yards away from his Bren gunner before opening fire. In the ensuing carnage, at least 20 Japanese were killed and another 15 wounded without any return fire being directed back towards Stevens' party. It was an auspicious opening to the fighting in that area. The main goal for the 2nd 3rd Independent Company was to clear the northern section of the track which led to Mubo and to clear the village of Bobdubi itself. By early May, a number of platoons from 24th Infantry Battalion were sent to assist the 2nd 3rd. Extensive patrolling and ambushing along the track and ridge lines proved successful and when patrols of the 2nd 3rd walked onto Bobdubi Ridge on the 11th of May, they found it abandoned, so they occupied it. Unfortunately, the position was in range of Japanese troops on Komiatum Ridge and their artillery. On 14th of May, after a heavy bombardment, the Japanese attacked the troops on Bobdubi Ridge, and although the 2nd 3rd held on, by 15th of May, after heavy air attacks, the Australians pulled back and concentrated on mostly defensive actions for the rest of the month and then into June. So we'll leave Bob Doobie for now, as doings were transpiring at other locations at this point, keeping in mind that Mubo has still been fought over during June. The next area of focus is known as the Battle of Lababia Ridge. The 2nd 7th Infantry Battalion was holding positions on Lababia Ridge, about 2 kilometres southwest of Mubo. On 15th of June, the 2nd 7th was relieved by D Company of the 2nd 6th. Around the 20th of June, Japanese air activity increased, with bombing and strafing runs on D Company's position. At 12.55pm, D Company reported a group of Japanese infantry had moved towards their outpost and had been engaged. It was eventually determined that this was just a probe trying to establish the Australians' locations. Activity died down as night drew in. Throughout the following day, small groups of Japanese were noticed moving to the north of the track leading across Lababia Ridge. Rifle fire and machine guns accounted for some, but by far the most dangerous obstacle to the Japanese movement were the numerous booby traps the Australians had sown throughout the area. Regularly, D Company could hear these traps exploding as the day drew on. But at around 2pm, the Japanese launched their assault against D Company, supported by heavy machine gun and mortar fire. The attack grew in intensity and a bayonet charge from the left nearly carried directly into the D Company perimeter. While those on the left were fending off that attack, 
a similar attack developed on the right side. This attack was pushed even harder and the attackers got to within 20 yards before being halted by machine gun and rifle fire. Undeterred by their losses so far, further waves of attacks were launched and the Australian's precarious grip on the ridge was looking shaky. But the timely arrival of C Company at around 6pm stabilised the situation and as night drew in the fighting subsided. The result of the day's action was roughly 100 Japanese casualties, although that was only an estimate, and 9 Australians killed and another 9 wounded. The following day almost mirrored the events of the 21st. Throughout the morning, small groups of Japanese soldiers were observed and engaged where possible. But then, shortly before 2pm, a heavy fire was opened up against the left flank and the Japanese advanced again. But D Company's fire proved too powerful and the attack was beaten off within 5 minutes. Over the next day or so, small attacks were put in along the ridge, but the addition of another platoon of troops strengthened the perimeter and the attacks faded away. It was estimated that around 500 to 600 Japanese were involved in the attack and roughly 200 to 250 were killed or wounded. Total Australian casualties were 11 killed and 12 wounded. One of the killed and two of the wounded were as a result of the Australians' own booby traps. The Nassau Bay operation was primarily undertaken by US troops, so I won't cover it in depth, but it was an important precursor to the operations to take Salamoa. Nassau Bay was located about 25 kilometres south of Salamoa and the landing was intended to establish a beachhead where supplies could be amassed for the attack northwards. On 30th of June, while the fighting was going on inland at Mubo and Bobdubi, the American 1st 162nd Battalion approached the largely undefended beach. But while there was little to no resistance by the Japanese, Mother Nature had other ideas. The weather was appalling and during the landing many of the landing craft were swamped and their cargo of heavy equipment was lost. Nevertheless, enough of the equipment was got ashore with enough troops to secure the beachhead and establish a perimeter far enough inland to ensure further build-up could take place when the weather improved. While the landing at Nassau Bay was struggling on during the 30th of June, the second battle at Bob Doobie got underway. The Japanese were still making life difficult for the troops at Mubo and so the 15th Brigade were ordered to make further attacks to gain control of the Komiatum track and capture the Bob Doobie Ridge to relieve some of the pressure on Mubo. The attack would open with an assault by the newly arrived and inexperienced 58th 59th Infantry Battalion, while the 24th Infantry Battalion set up ambushes along the Malolo track. The Allied Air Force began bombarding Bobdubi Ridge at 8.40am, keeping the Japanese busy while B, C and D companies moved into position. At 9am, B and C companies moved off. They pushed forward towards the ridge with C Company attacking Vickers' position. The Japanese defenders put up a strong opposition, and by shortly after 1 o'clock, C Company was forced to retire to a village just short of the position and dug in. At the same time, B Company pushed forward to its objective, capturing a village and then attacking the old Vickers position, while A Company attacked Oradubi. Both attacks were unsuccessful. By 5pm, D Company had moved forward towards old Bob Doobie, and C Company was ordered to renew their attack on the Vickers position, but once again were forced back. All in all, day one of this attack was largely a bust. Each company had advanced beyond the starting positions, but none of the objectives had been captured. Across the battalion, four men had been killed with eight wounded, so relatively light casualties, but with not much to show for them. Initially, the Japanese only had about one company of troops defending the area, but they were well dug in and supported by machine gun and mortar fire. Over the following days, a further 200 troops arrived, and then a further battalion, hurriedly sent up from Leigh about a week later. It was a tough nut to crack when there was only one company defending. Now, it was going to be even harder. Fortunately, about the same time, the 2nd 3rd Independent Company were pushing forward towards a feature known as Ambush Knoll. Ambush Knoll dominated the Bob Doobie Ridge, in much the same way as the Pimple dominated Mubo. 
Throughout the first two weeks of July, the second third made good, though hard-fought, progress, and by 15th July they were ready to launch their attack on the Knoll. With flank protections established, at 13.45 the attack commenced with a C platoon. The Japanese position was barricaded, with the defenders using grenades and machine guns to hold C platoon off. Five Australians were wounded, and Lieutenant Harrison was killed. At 17.30, A platoon reinforced C, and the attack recommenced. But it wasn't until about 20.00 before the Japanese defence began to crack. B platoon had managed to cut the Orobubi ambush knoll track, cutting off Japanese reinforcements. With darkness closing in, the Japanese attempted to evacuate the knoll, but were caught by a B platoon ambush, and the fighting died down. At 8.50am on the 16th, reconnaissance patrols moved onto ambush knoll and an hour later C and B platoons met up on the top of the feature to find it clear of enemy troops. It's difficult to overstate the importance of the capture of ambush knoll. In that landscape of ridges, valleys, knolls and tracks, ambush knoll was the key position, but it may not have been immediately obvious to the commanders when working out their battle plans. Even the best readers of maps can fail to see a position's importance, or lack of it. An interesting example of this was the battle at Cape Hellers on the southern tip of the Gallipoli Peninsula in World War I. The British were convinced that the feature known as Achibaba commanded the entire Hellers battlefield. The maps certainly suggested that it did, and so a number of assaults were launched to try and capture the position, resulting in thousands of casualties. But the reality was that Achibaba commanded nothing. The Brits could have taken it, and the Turkish defensive strength would not have suffered in any meaningful way. The same problem faces the commanders in the Lay Salamal campaign. The maps gave an idea of which peaks may have dominated the area, but it wasn't until troops were actually on top of Ambush Knoll that its key location became clear. Maybe if they'd concentrated their attacks there from the start, the campaign may have been over sooner with fewer casualties. But hindsight is a wonderful thing, something which is always denied to the commanders at the time. Mubo obviously looked like the place to put the main attack. But it's as you read through subsequent diary entries that the full importance of Ambush Knoll becomes apparent. Just about every movement taken over the next week or so to relieve pressure on Mubo and advance on Salamoa is launched from Ambush Knoll. For example, on the day following the capture, the diary records that B Platoon left Ambush Knoll to attack Japanese lines of communication. On 20th of July, from their position on the Knoll, C Company engaged a Japanese position between Ambush Knoll and Wells Junction, inflicting a number of casualties. On 23rd, a patrol left Ambush Knoll to investigate Japanese positions in the Sugarcane area. Of course, the Japanese knew the importance of the position. From the 20th to the 23rd, they launched a number of direct attacks trying to remove the Australians and were beaten back each time. Even as late as the 29th and 30th of July, they were still firing what artillery they could spare towards the Knoll, hoping to disrupt Australian development of the perimeter in the hope that they would be able to retake their old position at some stage in the future. But it was to no avail. By 19th of August, all the important features, Sugarcane Ridge, Timbered Knoll, Namling Ridge and Mortar Knoll, were in Australian hands and Bob Doobie Village and the Ridge were captured. The capture of an ambush knoll also meant that the 58th 59th didn't have to attack Old Vickers' position in the face of heavy defence. Recognising their precarious position, the Japanese pulled back and the 58th 59th was able to take their objective with little opposition. With Bob Doobie in Allied hands, the Japanese had no choice but to pull their forces back from Mubal's well and so the important positions inland from Salamoa were secured by 19th of August and the final stages of the campaign could begin. But before I go into that, it's important to mention a couple of other battles which were carried out by US troops while Bob Doobie was taking place. The Battle of Roosevelt Ridge was fought between the 21st of July and the 14th of August. Pushing out from their position at Nassau Bay, they came up against Japanese troops holding a ridge overlooking Tambu Bay. The Americans named this ridge Roosevelt Ridge. 
The US 162nd Infantry Regiment made several attempts to capture the ridge throughout July and early August. The defenders fought tenaciously and the slow progress caused a bit of tension between US and Australian commanders. But by mid-August the ridge was taken. At about the same time, the Australians had secured Mount Tambu and the Japanese accepted the reality that Salamoa was lost. They pulled their forces back to Ley for the final confrontation. The operation to capture Ley was codenamed Operation Postern and would involve a pincer movement consisting of an amphibious landing to the east of Ley by the 9th Australian Division on the 4th of September. On the following day, an airborne assault by the US 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment and two gun crews from the Australian 2nd 4th Field Regiment was launched at Nadzab to the west of Ley. First, we'll look at the 9th Division's movement from the east. With the 20th Brigade leading, followed by the 26th and the 24th in reserve, the landing was made at two beaches, Red Beach and Yellow Beach, near Malahang. The three battalions of the 20th Brigade, the 2nd 13th, 2nd 15th and 2nd 17th, all reported landing unopposed. A collision between two landing craft carrying the 2nd 15th created the only major scare of the landing when Private Dempsey was thrown overboard. He was later recovered uninjured. Encountering very little opposition to their advance, the 9th Division pushed towards Ley. It was only when they reached the Busu River that the reason for the lack of Japanese presence became obvious. The Japanese were no idiots. They knew the area from the beachhead to the Busu provided no real defensive position. The Busu River, on the other hand, was a formidable obstacle. Although not particularly wide or even particularly deep, it just happens to be the fastest flowing river in New Guinea and the seventh fastest flowing river in the world. Under normal conditions, fording the river would be a difficult enough proposition. Throw in a few determined Japanese troops on the opposite bank and all of a sudden things get a bit tough for the advancing troops. The initial crossing was to be made by the 2nd 28th Battalion on the 9th of September. During the afternoon of the 8th, the battalion moved into positions in preparation for a dawn attack. A patrol from B Company was sent out in the wee small hours to recce a potential crossing point 300 metres from the river mouth, but it soon reported that the river was impassable at that point so the dawn attack was postponed. Shortly after 7am, another patrol from B Company went out to check another crossing point, only to find that it too was impassable. At the same time, A Company sent out a patrol under Lieutenant Rook. This patrol was able to establish themselves on an island part way across the river. At quarter past nine, nine platoon attempted to cross to the west bank, but came under fire from Japanese positions, killing one forward scout and wounding the other. Under the cover of mortar fire, the platoon was able to draw back to the east bank of the river. At 12.50, orders were given to get the battalion across the Busu River with zero hour set for 17.30. B Company would lead the attack followed by A Company, Battalion Headquarters, C and then D Company. They would cross the start line in an extended order and on reaching the opposite bank, B and A would form a perimeter and provide protection for those following. Then A and D Companies would form the right of the perimeter, B and C the left with headquarters in the centre, at which point they'd all be nicely ensconced on the west bank. Well, that's what the plan said. So, at 17.30, B Company moved forward to lead the crossing, which the battalion diary recorded as being extremely hazardous. Quite a few men were swept off their feet and dragged away by the water. Fortunately, not far downstream was a large sandbar, which many of them washed up on. The Japanese unloaded heavy rifle fire at the advancing men, mainly against the left flank and the men who were on that sandbar. The other companies followed close behind and had to deal with the same combined problems of rushing water and accurate fire. But somehow the battalion made it across, losing only around 30 men, 13 of whom were reported as missing, believed drowned. By 1830 they were more or less where they intended to be, but were still being subjected to rifle and machine gun fire. In order to establish communications with brigade headquarters, the intelligence sergeant, Crouchley, although slightly wounded during the initial crossing, went back through the rushing water 
and Japanese bullets to link up with brigade to apprise them of the situation. Although most of the troops had made it across, many had to let go of their weapons to avoid being drowned by the extra weight. They had lost 25% of their automatic weapons and 80 rifles. It's one thing to be on the other side of the river, but to have nothing with which to shoot at the enemy is probably not the greatest situation ever. As darkness fell on the 9th of September, weapons and ammunition were able to be carried across. On the following day, the focus of the 2nd 28th could now be turned to ejecting the Japanese defenders, but before they could get moving, the Japanese launched a counter-attack which was beaten off after heavy fighting in which Sergeant McGregor of 14 platoon was killed. At 1500, 14 platoon attacked enemy positions in chest deep swamp and killed 63 troops for the loss of 4 killed and 17 wounded. Another Japanese counter-attack was thrown in against C Company. It appeared the Japanese were attempting to work their way along the beach in order to come in behind the company, but they were held at bay. The next few days were characterised by small unit actions, snipers and attack and counter-attack, but the 2nd 28th Battalion, now joined by the rest of the brigade, slowly crept forward towards Ley. On the 15th, an operations order for the evacuation of Ley was found, and the brigade was ordered to push on with all haste to thwart any Japanese attempts to escape. Orders for the final attack on Ley were issued early on the morning of the 16th. The Air Force put in a number of bombing raids over the town. As the 2nd 28th was waiting its turn to move forward, the news was received that the 2nd 32nd Battalion had occupied Ley without facing any opposition. So, what was going on? So while the 9th Division was commencing its advance toward the Busu River, and all the events just mentioned, the landing at Nadzab was carried out. The landing itself was primarily an American affair, with a couple of field guns and a crew from the 2nd 4th Field Regiment, as I said before. The drop was carried out unopposed, and soon the main objective for the operation was taken, the airfield. With the airfield secured, the Australian 7th Division could be flown in to cut off any chance of a Japanese retreat. It was during the airlift that the 7th Division suffered its worst casualties of the campaign. Tragically, the casualties weren't even inflicted in combat. Troops and equipment of the 7th Division were loaded onto American B-24 Liberator bombers at Port Moresby. At about 4.15am, the 2nd 33rd Battalion were being loaded onto trucks ready to move forward, just as a group of US Liberator bombers began to take off. The trucks were on a small hill at the end of the runway and watched as the aircraft approached. The first flew about 100 feet over their heads but the second one didn't seem to be gaining the same altitude. Someone then ran forward to the trucks yelling, Look out, look out. An eyewitness account stated, quote, At that moment, the bomber crashed through the trees, shearing off its left wing and a fuselage smashed into the waiting men. An explosion lit up the scene as men were running around attempting to escape the flames. Many of the men were carrying grenades and mortar rounds, and as their clothing and equipment burned, the ordnance exploded. So many brave things were done by a great number of men that it is impossible to record them all. End quote. In all, 15 were killed instantly, and 44 died of their injuries, a total of 59 killed. A further 92 were injured but survived. There's so many ways a soldier can be killed in war, each of them a tragic loss, but to lose 59 men from such a random incident seems particularly heartbreaking. Regardless of this tragedy, the 7th Division continued with their part in the operations. On 11th of September, at the time the 9th Division were pushing west from the Busu River, the 25th Infantry Brigade of the 7th Division pushed east towards Ley. They encountered a Japanese force of about 200 soldiers at Jensen's Plantation. At a distance of less than 50 metres, the two armies engaged each other, but the artillery support from the 2nd 4th Field Artillery proved the difference. 33 Japanese were killed and the brigade was able to continue its advance. Two days later, brigade came up against an even stronger defence at Heath's Plantation. At 8am, the 2nd 25th Battalion moved towards the plantation, with A Company moving down the main track, where they made contact with the enemy at about 830 
while A Company engaged, B Company was ordered to attack from the southeast, with C Company on their left flank. The fighting was extremely hard, and when Private Kelleher's platoon came under fire from a concealed machine gun, inflicting a number of casualties, Kelleher grabbed a couple of grenades and rushed the machine gun post. His charge killed some of the enemy machine gunners, but not all. Unconcerned, Kelleher returned to his position, grabbed a Bren gun and charged the machine gun post for a second time. He unloaded it into the post and took care of the remaining Japanese. His section commander had been wounded and was somewhere out in the open, still subject to enemy fire from other positions. So, as if he hadn't done enough for one day, Kelleher ran to his section commander, picked him up and carried him back to safety through heavy fire. You'll no doubt be surprised to learn, Kelleher was awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions. It never ceases to amaze me how these things happen. In the heat of the moment, a bloke just goes, bugger it, and twice charges a machine gun, then risks it all again to go and pick up a wounded comrade. It's amazing. Despite Kelleher's efforts, the Japanese resistance was as stubborn as ever. B Company managed to seize a position by 11 o'clock, which turned out to be the Japanese headquarters, where they managed to capture a lot of important documents relating to the Japanese plans to evacuate Lei. C Company eventually managed to link up with B Company by 13.30 and established a two-company perimeter while A Company continued its fight up the main track. Enemy machine gun position on Whitaker's Bridge held A Company up and it wasn't until 17.20 that A Company was able to take its objective and link up with C Company. Casualties for the day at Heath's Plantation were 10 killed, 16 wounded, 2 accidentally injured and 2 wounded but remained on duty. The Japanese casualties were crushing though, losing a total of 312 men. With that, the last of the serious Japanese resistance to the west of Ley was defeated and the 25th Brigade moved on towards Ley, linking up with the 9th Division on the 16th of September. It would appear that there was a little bit of resistance on the 16th, judging by a message form I stumbled across in the 2nd 25th Battalion's diary, which I would like to share with you. It's a very poignant message which goes to the heart of all that is near and dear. It's dated 16th of September and is from 25th Brigade to the 9th Division and it states, quote, 25th Brigade in occupation lay 1100 hours 16th September. Thanks for the arty support midday, but please don't blow our shit house down. Signed, Lieutenant Colonel R.H. Marson. End quote. So, with the 25th Brigade's shithouse safe from destruction, the Lay Salamawa campaign drew to a close. It had commenced on the 22nd of April up in the hills of Mubo and ended 147 days later at Lay. The epic battles at the Pimple, Ambush Knoll, Bob Doobie, Busu River, and Heath's Plantation not to mention the myriad other smaller engagements, really tested the Allies. Up in the hills, it was not always immediately obvious what the main target should be, and the commanders and the troops needed to be flexible and adapt to the changing situation in order to lever the Japanese out of well-prepared positions. The cost was high, but finally the Japanese were overcome and the Allies could now turn their attention to pushing the Japanese out of New Britain, the Philippines and Borneo to the eventual victory in 1945. None of that would have been possible if the Japanese had been successful in holding their positions in Lei and Salamawa. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Hold up. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 